So last week we looked at the angel's announcement of the birth of Jesus to the junior high aged Virgin Mary in Luke's gospel. Gabriel said, don't be afraid, God is honoring you, which of course made no sense to Mary. She was not someone who should expect a divine visitation in this historical context. She was a kid. More than that, she was a young girl in a patriarchal society. Now, this is not to say that the Bible is devoid of important stories of women in leadership or women even in battle, Uh, women as key players in the narrative, women who hear directly from God. But it's fair to say that it's definitely not the norm in these ancient stories. The angel's message, it didn't get any easier or any more lucid for Mary as he continued. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. The child, Gabriel claimed, will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever and there will be no end to his kingdom. These are massive claims. I wouldn't blame Mary if she was afraid or just really confused. But she said yes. She said yes to potential public trial, potential persecution, potential condemnation, potential death. And if not death, potential scrutiny, potential loneliness and insecurity. She said yes also to the potential harm of her young body. She said yes to long nights, to little sleep, to caring for a baby, maybe without any support. She said yes to parenthood. This 13 to 15 year old kid looked fear in the face and said, I'm in. It's a truly inspiring story that I think gets a bit whitewashed this time of year. Now this week, we will be studying Matthew's version of these happenings, which we must admit is quite different. Hear these words from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph, before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as an angel from God commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. Joseph called him Jesus, the word of God for the people of God. It's pretty different, right? In only seven verses, Matthew describes how the birth of Jesus took place, quickly moving readers from the virgin conception to the birth of Jesus. Joseph is the main character, I guess we could say, or at least the main conversation partner in the story. 
Unlike Luke's version, Mary doesn't speak, she doesn't sing, she isn't even present. Other familiar elements of the story are missing as well. The couple, for instance, doesn't travel to Bethlehem. As two scholars have written, there is no story of the birth itself, no swaddling clothes, no stable, no manger, no angels singing to shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth in Matthew's version. Now, we eventually get an angry Herod the Great, a king who is jealous of a potential rival to his throne, and we get wise men following a star and visiting Jesus in Mary and Joseph's house. But most of the other elements that are depicted in the nativity scene that's probably sitting on your mantle, they're only found in Luke's gospel. This is the humble Christmas scene portrayed by Matthew. Joseph is engaged to Mary. Now remember, in the first century Jewish culture, this was a formal and binding prenuptial contract. Mary was already effectively Joseph's wife. She was only waiting for phase two of the marriage process, which usually took about a year after the betrothal. This would include a public ceremony, consummation of the marriage, and the woman moving in with her husband. One New Testament scholar, Donald Hagner, writes, even in the engagement period, the man had legal rights over the woman, and the agreement could only be broken by a formal process of divorce. A betrothal was a big deal. It was contractual. And sexual infidelity during this period was a breach of contract. But oddly, when Mary is found to be with child, Joseph sets out to divorce her quietly. This is really important, and this line, it contains a lot of intrigue, a lot of things that we are left to wonder about. Things like, how did Joseph know Mary was pregnant? Who told him? Was it Mary? Did they talk? Who else knew? Did everyone know? What were they saying? How was the news affecting Joseph? What about his family? Remember, this is at a time when arranged marriages were a thing, so the family was invested too. Was Joseph sad when he found out? Did he cry? Was he inconsolable? Did he love her? Was he heartbroken? Why did he want to break the relationship off quietly? And what does that mean? Were there other options? Was he expected to do something different? Why does he want to protect her? I mean, in his mind, she cheated on him. Did he think that she didn't cheat on him? Does he think that this is what she wants him to do, to break it off? Is he trying to be noble? Matthew, of course, doesn't answer any of these questions. Instead, in his retelling, the angel shows up as Joseph is contemplating all of this and says, Joseph, son of David. Note, this is the only time in Matthew's gospel where son of David is used of anyone other than Jesus. Matthew is at great pains to link Jesus with the Davidic line because that's the, where the Messiah was going to come from. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. In other words, don't be afraid, Joseph. Mary didn't cheat on you. And the kid that you, Joseph, will name, he, he's going to be special. He's going to save the people from their sins. So, Joseph does what the angel says. 
Now, earlier this week, I, I saw this picture making rounds on the internet. It's called Courage 3.0 by an artist named Tim Okamura. It's jarring and beautiful and compelling and, and also completely new. When I first saw it, it was accompanied by a poem by Caitlin Hardy Shelter that heightened my experience as a viewer. She writes, Sometimes I wonder if Mary breastfed Jesus, if she cried out when he bit her, or if she sobbed when he would not latch. And sometimes I wonder if this is all too vulgar to ask in a church full of men without milk stains on their shirts or coconut oil on their breasts, preaching from pulpits off limits to the mother of God. But then I think of feeding Jesus, birthing Jesus, the expulsion of blood and smell of sweat, the salt of a mother's tears onto the soft head of the salt of the earth, feeling lonely and tired hungry, annoyed, overwhelmed, loving, and I think, if the vulgarity of birth is not honestly preached by men who carry power but not burden, who carry privilege but not labor, who carry authority but not submission, then it should not be preached at all. Now, clearly, Shelter has a theological axe to grind, one that most of us at TRP would largely agree with. I mean, we fully support women in leadership, which is good because we currently have five women in leadership. But at a more rudimentary level, I found all of this convicting. The depiction of Mary as a black woman, the poem about experiences and feelings and emotions that I know nothing about. Both the image and poetry, it served to provide a needed reminder that my understanding of a certain biblical text is limited by my experiences. When I think about Mary, I'm not prone to thinking about breastfeeding because, well, I haven't done that before. I'm also not prone to think of Mary actually giving birth and what that must have been like because while I was in the room for the births of my two sons, my experience was limited to that of an observer. There are certain things I will never know, and they're not foremost in my thinking. The reason why I bring this up is because something similar happens when we hear sermons on Joseph. His experience is a bit more universal, uh, not the bit about an angel visiting and saying, you'll raise the Son of God. Now, that's, that's weird. I mean, when reading his side of the story, a lot of us usually default to the insecurities that we would or that we have experienced following relational infidelity. It's broken trust, anger, pain, embarrassment. We end up asking things like, well, how did it affect him? Did he eat ice cream and watch Netflix? We men often joke about how impossible it must have been for Joseph to believe that his fiancée did not cheat on him. And I think we often limit our reading to this sort of response, one that deals primarily with Joseph as a man who may have had an unfaithful partner, at least most of us do. And maybe as a result, we miss some of the details in a in this passage that provide insight on Joseph's character. We're too preoccupied with our comparison between Joseph's experience and that one time in college when that girl broke our heart. So we miss things like this when Matthew writes, Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. This, it's a loaded statement. It tells us a lot about Joseph's character. 
clearly, yes, it tells us that he's righteous. Uh, another way to translate this is he is just, which means, among other things, that Joseph is a rule follower. We would expect him then as a righteous or just man to follow the Torah to the letter of the law, which makes his decision to break off his engagement quietly really intriguing. Matthew says that Joseph didn't want to humiliate Mary. And oddly, this was before he knew anything about the circumstances, anything about the virgin conception. All he knew was Mary, his fiancée, was pregnant. Now, the law had provisions for what to do in these sorts of scenarios, and Joseph, because he's a righteous Israelite, he knew them. The primary text is in Deuteronomy chapter 22. In verse 23, it says, If a young woman who is a virgin is engaged to one man and another man meets up with her in a town and has sex with her, you must bring both of them to the city gates and stone them until they die. The young woman, because she didn't call for help in the city, and the man because of the fact that he humiliated his neighbor's wife. It also has legislation if the woman was an unwilling participant. In such cases, only the man was to be killed. But Joseph doesn't plan to do this, to try his wife and convict and punish her according to the law. No, he, he wants to absolve Mary of her commitment and, and move on which is really unexpected. There's another relevant Old Testament teaching that some find important here. It's called the Law of Bitter Waters from Numbers 5. It's a weird passage about what to do when a husband suspects his pregnant wife of adultery but has no proof. Now, Joseph knows that Mary is pregnant, but it doesn't say anything about the circumstances. It doesn't say if Joseph thought she was victim of an assault or if she was in love with another man or if there was some sort of a third option here. If Joseph wanted to figure it out, the law of bitter waters was available to him. And again, this, this is very strange, so just buckle up here. The law of bitter waters is a process that involves the accusing husband offering a sacrifice and the accused wife having to drink a potion of holy water and dust that's prepared by a priest. The priest would then make the woman swear a solemn pledge, which basically says, if you didn't cheat on your husband, then the baby will live. But if you did cheat and you're lying, the baby's going to die. Now remember, this is an ancient text. That doesn't excuse it, but we must put it in its proper place. According to Scott McKnight, he writes, This legal procedure of drinking bitter waters sometimes became a public display of justice, and other times outright family revenge. The woman would have been required to drink the bitter waters, her clothes would have been torn, her hair would have been let down, all her jewelry would have been removed, and passers-by, especially women, would have been encouraged to stare at the publicly shamed woman in order to make an object lesson of her. If Joseph questioned Mary's fidelity, this was the procedure. But he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to humiliate her. He didn't want to put her through this terrible ordeal. Now, this is going to sound weird, but deciding what to do if Joseph didn't want to pursue any of these lawful options it would not have been an easy decision for a righteous person to make in this context. And this is actually brought out by Matthew. A better way to translate the line describing Joseph 
brings out this contrast between his righteousness and his not wanting to humiliate Mary. You could think of it this way, but Joseph, her husband, a righteous man, yet not wanting to disgrace her publicly. These two things are at odds. Joseph was righteous, and by planning to divorce her quietly, he was doing something that righteous people in this context would not typically have done. Joseph was righteous, and in this context, the righteous or just thing to do was expose Mary as an adulteress and make her suffer the consequences. But but what happens is, Joseph was righteous, and he didn't do what he was expected to do. The law says, here's how you deal with the situation, but Joseph says, let's do something different. I I know, as a modern Western reader, this seems like a no-brainer. Don't murder adulterers. Don't make a woman, maybe who has been sexually assaulted, drink a priestly potion that might result in the death of a baby. The legal code of the Bible, it's ancient, it's weird, it's based on a system of purity that no longer makes sense to us. It, It legislates justice in a way that we would deem to be morally disreputable. But for Joseph... This this would have been difficult. He was expected to convict, to punish, to condemn, and yet he decides the best course of action is to not do what the law says. He decides the best course of action is to love his fiancée by being merciful, to love his fiancée by letting her go, to divorce her quietly, to not humiliate her. Joseph decides the best course of action is to not do what people expected a righteous man to do. And when you think about it, what Joseph is doing here, it sounds a lot like what Joseph's son does later in the story. Think of the the story in John's Gospel of the woman caught in adultery. Man, I wish this was in Matthew because the ties between Joseph and Jesus would be so clear. But this story is only recorded in John, but still, it just... Just humor me. When this woman was found out, the people were ticked. They dragged her out into the street and everyone wanted to kill her. They were picking up stones to do so. The man, by the way, is nowhere to be seen. And as all of this is unfolding, Joseph's kid, Jesus, says, You who are without sin cast the first stone. Jesus' righteousness, like Joseph's, it goes in a different direction than what is expected by the religious elite. In the book of Matthew, Joseph's treatment of Mary can can be related also to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus keeps saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus keeps rereading or reinterpreting the law. He's, He's saying, this is what people expect, but what I'm saying is actually very different than that. And this, too, is previewed in Joseph's reaction to the pregnancy of his wife. Professor Eugene Boring, which is hilarious, right? He he ties all this together, Professor Boring. He writes, In a difficult moral situation, Joseph attends to the voice of God, and he is willing to set aside previous understanding of God's will in favor of this word from the living and saving God. Just let that sink in for a second. 
In a difficult moral situation, Joseph attends to the voice of God and he is willing to set aside his previous understanding of God's will in favor of this word from the living and saving God. Now, I would be doing a great disservice to what seems to be the intent of Matthew's story if I left it at, so let's go do what Joseph does. My focus has been on Joseph, but Matthew's retelling is not overly concerned with Joseph or Mary or the angel. He's concerned with Jesus. That's what this entire passage is about. Jesus will save the people from their sins. Jesus will be God with us. Jesus will be the one for whom the people have been waiting. But I think there's something too often buried in the angel's command to Joseph to not be afraid. Maybe the angel is saying more than, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife and raise this kid. Don't be afraid of what people say or think about you or your wife. Maybe the angel is also saying, don't be afraid, Joseph, to instill in your son a righteousness that goes beyond the letter of the law to the heart of it. Don't be afraid to keep doing what you are doing right now. To have heard what the law says, but to say and do something different, something that is motivated by your love of neighbor. Joseph was a righteous and a sensitive man. He apparently wasn't bound by the legal code in a way that would strip people of their dignity, of their humanity, of their divine image. He didn't always do things that were expected just because that was the status quo. And we don't hear a lot about Joseph, but in Matthew's story, where Joseph is featured, we can see hints of his influence on Jesus' future teaching. Jesus says, you've heard it said in the past, but I say to you. And Joseph, at least in this story, seems to be living that out. So may we consider Joseph, may we consider his boldness, his resolve, his love, May we be gracious and merciful, and may we live not according to the letter of the law alone, but according to love, even if it's not lived out in the way that people 